This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Party there with their moody track compliments. It's five past four. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Got some great guests on the show. Kicking off real soon with Sally Goldner and Jack's Jackie Brown. They feature in a new queer space documentary called It's More Complex Than Yes, which focuses on the time of the postal survey for marriage equality and the emotions and issues that that has dug up for the community and where to from here and how we deal with the fallout from that campaign which caused so much damage for the community even though I think the result was good, the yes vote was good but it just did so much damage, dug up so many issues and there's been consequences. We'll be talking to Jack's Jackie Brown and Sally Goldner all about that, 10 past four, and at 4.35, I'll be talking to Adelaide author Meg's Margaret Merrilies all about her new novel, which is called Take Big Rough Stones, which looks at issues for lesbians who are feminists in Adelaide. Takes a, a comedy take on it. Uh, I was saying to someone before, you probably need a good sense of humour to be a lesbian in Adelaide these days. We'll be chatting to Mags all about that. Lots to look forward to on In Your Face. In the meantime, though, here's Princess Superstar. Get off, you're so horny, Josh. Get in bed, Freddy Krueger, but let you see your mom in the morning. 
shut the shake it. One day you know how nice it is to get laid while you're getting paid. I'm a bad babysitter, got my boyfriend in your shower. I'm making six bucks an hour. I'm a bad babysitter, got my boyfriend in your shower. I'm making six bucks an hour. Oh, Dad, they just came back. Jeez, Mr. W, your wife looks bad. Oh, it must have been the drink she had. We drank some my ties, watch high live. Ripped off a thigh high. Um, too much information. I need a ride. Oh, let's take the bed. That's the coolest car I've ever seen. How old are you again? I forget. 19? Yeah, it's been like four more years. Oh, one time, could you please show me one of those nice chairs? Ooh, have you been working out? No doubt. Here's your house. You want to come in? We just got this awesome new couch. Ow, stop it, girl. Can I get a little peek? No, nah, girl, I'll take a rain check and see you next week. I'm a bad babysitter. I got my boyfriend in your shower. I'm making six bucks an hour. I'm a bad babysitter. got my boyfriend in your shower. God bless her. Princess Superstar there from New York City. Bad babysitter. It's 10 past four. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, it's more complex than yes. Here's a new queer space documentary that reflects on the marriage postal survey time and the issues and emotions it evoked. In the studio, we have 3CR's Sally Goldner. And on the line, we have Jack's Jackie Brown, who both featured in the documentary. Welcome to you both. Hello. Hello, hello. And hello to you. Jack's on the line. Yay. Jax, let's start with you. What did you feel you couldn't say during the postal survey time? I mean, I feel like we had to kind of be um, good, upstanding queer citizens in the sense that we had to pretend or say that if we got marriage equality, our relationship and our lives are going to look just like heterosexual people's lives. Um so there was a lot. I felt a lot of pressure to, um, to kind of uh, uh, pretend I was going to assimilate or be aspiring to kind of a heterosexual-ish kind of mould for my relationship and my life. Which, as a queer person, I really don't. So I felt like there was a lot of um, external pressure through what was being said about queer people in the media, but also in our communities to kind of. Um, yeah, to, to to pretend marriage equality was the most important and the biggest issue and the only issue that we should be fighting for at that time as queer people. And I think there's a lot of other issues that really need fighting for. Sally, what did you feel you couldn't say during the campaign? I felt I couldn't say that um, trans people, in my opinion, were thrown under the bus, along with others, such as bi, and obviously they're the groups that I can identify with, but I totally and I totally acknowledge others felt the same. Um, and that's you know an example of that was the very almost the start of the whole thing the night of the Liberal Party party room meeting and two of our own community spokespeople are in front of the media on ABC 24 and go the gay and lesbian community are incredibly disappointed with this and the other example that was a video by Karen Phelps which you know pulled out a bit of that horrible Christian lobby ad which was a gender issue about my son's going to have to wear a dress next year or whatever the silly comment was and then goes the gay and lesbian community is going to face debate well that's a trans issue it was like we were swept under the rug we were too embarrassing and we really felt betrayed and abandoned by a lot of our so-called community leaders. Jax, you talk in the documentary about community pressure to feel grateful during the marriage campaign. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that there was this feeling of we should be grateful um, 
that we get to uh, have a chance to possibly have marriage equality in this country, um, we should be grateful that we're supposedly moving towards equality. Um, and, and I just felt deeply, deeply sad that um, that we were being subject to some of this stuff. At the time, my, my partner was pregnant with our child and we were trying to create a rainbow family and yet there was all this stuff going on in the media about should queer people um, be parents, what does parenting look like for them, you know, um, assuming that we were going to be some kind of terrible parents to children. And so it was a, it was a real um, emotional time for me um, with having all this stuff going on in my personal life and then feeling like, um, you know, my identities were really kind of up for debate in the media and in this really, really negative um, um, way. And I, and I really felt how, how could I be resilient in the face of that? And more importantly at the time, how could I teach my future child like resilience when um, she's going to encounter homophobia and biphobia and transphobia throughout her life? Um, and the marriage equality debate really just brought some of the worst of that out. What's it like now for you as, a, as an activist and as a person that was deeply affected by the campaign? Uh, what sort of residue are you dealing with from that emotionally? Um, look, I think going to this film screening last night, uh, for me personally, and I know for a number of people that were in the audience, was a really emotional experience because we've been carrying the weight of what we had to go through, what we were subjected to um, around with us for, you know, over six months now. And we really had no place to put that. I mean, when the Yes vote was announced, there was a lot of pressure to celebrate, to be like, wow, this is fabulous thing and we've got equality now and let's all go out and get drunk. And I know for me and my partner and a lot of our friends, we just felt exhausted and tired and just, you know, worn down by it all. And so... I've been carrying that feeling around of what do I do with all those emotions that that came up for me um, because of the things that were said about us? Where do we put that? Um, and I think we're still a long way from achieving actual meaningful equality for LGBTIQ people. So, um, yeah, it's kind of like a lot of heterosexual people, I think, think that, you know, we've got this thing now, we've got marriage equality and therefore we've got equality and it, it pushes away bigger conversations that we need to have around what does actual meaningful equality look like for LGBTIQ people. Of course, the documentary was shown last night. It features 20 people from the community. There was also a panel discussion, which you were both involved with. Sally, you've highlighted that the postal survey campaign was damaging to trans people and their sense of rights. Can you elaborate a bit more on that? Yes, yeah, certainly many, you know, tra- it was a fair comment to say that trans issues were used as a diversion tactic when the sort of issues were that were, you know, that were raised were nothing to do with why two people can't get married regardless of a, a little box on a birth certificate. And it's, you know, talking with people, there are many trans people who still haven't re-engaged with social media. They're still too fragile and upset and that's worrying and, you know, it's worrying me that I hear comments and I want to focus on the comment, not the person. In the interview Penny Wong did last month, she said everyone's moved on now. I'm with Jax in what Jax said, that there's this whole thing we had to be happy and grateful and, you know, celebrate. And I'm trying to worry about whether some of the people in my community are alive. Trigger warning, there were, there was an increase in transphobic assaults during and just after the survey period. And that's got to be traumatic. 
how, how are we supposed to celebrate that? And I think there was, there was, there has been a lack of empathy, but I suppose my thought is now, okay, we've, or dare I say, we've had the wedding, we've had the honeymoon, we've got rid of that, you know, and we've had the hangover, so to speak. Now we've got to get down to some hard work about how our rainbow communities, plural, work together mm. with true equality and respect. Jax, do you find Penny Wong's comments about moving on insulting? Yes, yeah, I do. Yeah, I mean, as I just said, I think that we still have a lot to process about what we had to go through. Um, And I know for a lot of people, myself included, it brought up a lot of stuff um, from, you know, when I was younger, from when I was, you know, a young kid living in the country, kind of wondering what my future could look like and and feeling really isolated and alone. Um, And so a lot of us are still processing. We haven't moved on and we need to create spaces like I hope we did last night and I hope this film creates where we can have those bigger, more difficult conversations about, you know, what is the hangover from what we had to go through? What are the issues that still need fighting for? And we need to come together as a community and and really still advocate for them. And by saying, you know, it's over, it's done, um, kind of assumes there's been a level of closure on many of us. Um, There hasn't been closure and we're still kind of looking for what that might look like. Yeah, look, um, very again, very much similar. Um, my issue from you know growing up was abandonment and isolation. If you like feeling isolated, I mean, thirteen years at an all boys school, how isolated does it get? There were other issues, and that's what came back for me when our, when the people I was supposed to trust, you know, not not our politicians, but our so called rainbow community leaders, sold us out. We heard last night about how the advertising strategy was framed in a certain way. Now. I'm not going to stereotype any group, including certain occupation, but advertising and marketing at its worst has one aim, get the sale, never mind the details, the people or the ethics. So we've pretty much got confirmation that it was a deliberate choice. And that leads to me as to how we get closure. I've got to say I was a bit pretty flat last night, but I'm feeling a bit more determined this morning that maybe it's helped shift some energy. I think it's the film has helped galvanise the desire to say we now have to have some pretty... Um, careful conversations within the rainbow community and possibly some tough ones about how we work together better in the future. The fact that someone thinks trans people and bi people can be thrown under the bus, that implies that they think within our own so-called rainbow, that means they imply that it implies that we're less than equal. And that's got to change. And the thing is, it's still happening. Only in the last month, a person was giving a submission to an LGBTI, will say, policy group, and they claimed there were no bisexual justice issues outstanding in Victoria, which is bunkum. Wow. And they didn't consult with bi communities. This is the part that's frustrating me. And if we're going to move into an era where we now start catching up bi and trans, and I will speak, I will say I'm pretty, pretty confident intersex would want some things done too, we've got to consult with um, bi, trans, intersex-specific groups, not think, say, cisgender people can speak for, for trans and gender diverse, etc., Sally, you've been speaking out a lot about bi erasure, and I thank you for that because I think it's really, really necessary. You've been highlighting the lack of specifically funded projects aimed at the bi community. What should the Andrews government fund as a priority? I think that a big issue which would have a lot of things, um, would have a lot of benefits, is checking in whether organisations that, say, claim to be LGBTI really are be inclusive. And, you know, I will... I'll give a hint and say, watch this space. There's a saying, the squeaky wheel gets the most attention. Well, 
we're beginning to get some attention, is all I can say for the moment, and that's most welcome. But if we did something that checked into that, we'd build capacity. There'd be more, say, community service organisations, particularly in, say, regional and rural areas, um, whereby people could go for support and you know, know that they didn't have to do a buy 101 to a health professional, etc. And obviously that, that sort of thing's got to be implemented and planned by um, people with the lived experience in the first place. Jax, what lessons can the queer community learn about creating equality and accepting diversity as a result of this marriage survey? Mm, I mean, I think that's a great question, and that's kind of the question that we need to keep asking, not just myself and Sally, but, you know, everyone else in, involved in the community too. Um, I mean, I think we need to get better at intersectionality and, and thinking about identities as being intersectional. And we talked a bit about that after the film on the panel last night as a kind of key area that we need to start thinking about and having those really tough conversations about, you know, what we need to do better. If somebody is trying to have a conversation with you about, um, you know, I'm a person with a disability, for instance, and I try and talk a lot about what access would mean for me and the spaces in the queer community that I can't access and how we could create better access. And sometimes those conversations are really hard and often people don't want to engage with in them. Um, so I think we need to get better at um, at thinking about intersectionality and identities and what that actually means and allowing space for the people who've been most marginalised in our communities to actually start to articulate and explore um, what equality would actually mean for them. As a queer person with a disability, what are the main discrimination issues that you experience within the LGBTIQ community? Um, look, I mean, one of them is definitely lack of access to accessible, inclusive spaces in the queer community. Like often our hottest, um, most interesting parties are up two flights of stairs in a little dark room. And I think that they're up there because, you know, the history of trans, um, bi and homophobia is that we've had to kind of find little hot spaces to get hot and heavy together away from the, the, the potential threat of violence. But they're, they're up there and that means that a lot of people with disabilities, a variety of different kind of disabilities, aren't in those spaces. So they aren't visible. So people just assume that we don't exist and that perpetuates this idea that people with disabilities are you know, less desirable than everyone else, less worthy of love, less worthy of a hot one-night stand, all those kind of things. And so when I find my way into those few accessible places, those few accessible parties, people are still surprised that I'm queer and that I'm there and that I want to be there because there's so few people with disabilities that are able to get to the community events. Um, and, I mean, I think people's attitudes around disability need to shift and change from viewing disability as a tragedy or, conversely, as an inspiration to viewing disability as part of human diversity and variation. Um, yeah, so so I guess the attitudinal stuff and the barriers in the built environment are really kind of the key things that don't enable me to participate in queer community to the extent that I would really love to a lot of the time. Sally, Dr Ruth McNair talks in the documentary about debating the community about who's in and who's out. And she said that's even happening at the Pride Centre planning level. Can you fill us in about what's happening there? I found that fascinating. Yeah, I, I must admit, I'm not exactly sure what she means. Mm. I mean, this would have, was recorded six months ago, but 
We go back, it's coming up for just on a year where we had the consult, the consultation day on July 1st last year, and unfortunately it wasn't um, well done, where a letter from a um, transphobic group was read out, you know, will it be safe for women-born women, which is instantly mm. a sign of transphobia and all that sort of thing. And so we're going to have to learn, you know, how we do things respectfully together. And so, yeah, that's what I, I think it's that sort of thing that may, that's my best guess as to what Ruth's referring to. But in that light, you know, it's also how we worked. If we are a rainbow that is intersectional, how we work together. And I am all for, to use the phrase, calling people in, you know, sit down, have a conversation. And in Melbourne, that may involve a coffee, you know, and just talking things through. And I'm all for that. And if you get, you know, get some change, hooray, onward we go. My challenge is I'm feeling frustrated is that sometimes it's the same old culprits within our rainbow of individuals and organisations who are still talking for other people, you know. And they're self-appointed often, aren't they? Very true. Very true. And that's a problem. And it's got to be about listening and learning. It's okay when it comes to diversity to say, hey, I didn't, you know, I don't know something I'm, I'm happy to ask. And I've got to do it. I'm, you know, I don't, you know, I don't understand, say, everything about what, you know, Jax's lived experience. And or it was good to see a few weeks ago there was a forum on LGBTI and intellectual disability. Mm. And so these are the things we need. It's okay to not know. But if you keep doing the same thing when you start knowing, that's where we've got a problem. Or when clearly, say, groups coming back to just my own identities, like, say, trans and bi, are feeling talked for rather than, um, and I'm again, I'm channeling you, Jax, nothing about us without us, as the saying goes. We've all got to run by that and start coming up with consulting, listening, agreeing to win-win solutions every time, not speaking for other people, because that's where we're getting it wrong and people feel frustrated and abandoned, etc. Look, the marriage campaign really sucked a lot of oxygen out of the room. A lot of issues were swept under the carpet. As you've said, there were many things that people couldn't speak about or didn't feel comfortable talking about. Now the survey's over, all the emotions coming up, is there's a space to deal with those issues. But there's also, I think, a danger period for the community as well mm. because we're at that point where there can be conflict over, over future direction for the community. And as a final question, I want to ask you both, what can the community do to manage that, particularly about potential conflicts over gender identity versus sexuality? I know they shouldn't be mutually exclusive, but some people are framing them as if they are. Uh, Jax, over to you first. I think I might hand over to Sally and hear what she's got to say sure. and have a think while she's no talking. Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, look, this is the thing. I mean, you know, that is, you know, the what the question in a way gives the answer versus. You know, mm. we've got to stop mm. thinking in terms of either or versus, dare I say, binaries and say it plays into the opposition's hands, doesn't it? Well, that's the thing and I mean there is the thing if we sit down and say, "Okay, we had some problems. We didn't do things well enough, but we're sitting down talking civilly, sensibly with good process and trying to do it better." It then it not only helps us to be more effective in everything we have to achieve, it does have the bonus side effect, not that I really care what the far right think, but it can shut them up. They can't say, oh, you people don't agree, so we don't have to listen to you. And they want splits, don't they? They want splits. Of course they do. Well, you know, when we sit down and work together effectively, when we genuinely value each other as equal, we'll get things done faster, more effectively, with better results, etc. And I think we can, you know, we've just got to find a good process that's, 
you know, safe enough to allow that. And I've been in some places where it's happened, so it's not like we have to reinvent a whole new wheel. It just needs some good facilitation with people sitting around the table, so to speak, making sure we've got a diverse range. It may mean a few different conversations with different people at first, you know, trying to iron some things out, but we've got to start it. And this is why I was, as I say, this morning, I'm feeling more um, the energy shifted a bit. We can get this going. And I think I think it's now time that um, there's two things that need to happen to start it. Some of those, well, in my opinion, culprits, we now need to get start writing and say, look, we've got to have some conversations. And also it need. but the thing I'm convinced of, there's lots of people at the grassroots, not just people who might have been directly disenfranchised who saw it. They're going to be critical too. You know, the... I've had lots of gays and lesbians say to me, yeah, we didn't do it right. And that's very encouraging. And so we'll need their help to sort of maybe put some pressure on the people I'm defining as culprits. But if we can get to the table with good process, then I think we can work it out. Jax, what are your thoughts? Um, I mean, I guess I guess the fear has always been that once we've got marriage equality, that we'll lose um, the gay and lesbian people in the community who maybe feel like that was their main key issue or one of their main key issues and maybe they won't turn up for the more intersectional stuff. I mean, I guess the difficulty is is finding the the things that unite us, the points that unite us that we want to move forward with while allowing space for the diversity and the difference that we all bring into the community. And I think that that's, that's a really big challenge, but that's one of the really beautiful things about working in such a diverse community is to be able to try and think about how can we hold both those very different um, perspectives and opinions and really think about um, what what unites us and what makes us um, move forward together. And I think this film and, and last night and hopefully some future events creating spaces where we can actually have these conversations, whether it be in person or online, and be really honest and raw with each other and and gentle and caring at the same time um, is kind of the challenge moving forward. So, yeah, I'm excited to see where we head and what, what comes out of it. So you're both optimistic. Sally, you're optimistic? Look, I think there is, and if there is, a paradox, if you like, the way that the Yes campaign did fr- frame marriage, the you know the using some key words, you know, inclusivity, equality. respect, equality, is what needs to happen. It's that the marriage campaign didn't walk the talk, or the Yes campaign didn't. Mm. So if we can fine tune that approach, that's where we have a framework of common values. And I had a conversation with a psychologist a few months ago about this. He said, well, "Who said? Well, what unites all of you, LGBT and I?" And it's like we're fighting this common enemy of queer phobia, and it's not really a good way to unite to fight an enemy. Let's find some positive things. So I the way the equality, equality, respect, inclusivity, diversity are good values, but we've got to do it better. And that's where I think we do have a starting point. But now comes the time as we move um, into some of the issues that got left behind where we've got to make sure, as we've said, the voices are at the table. So we've got a starting point. It's not like it has to be confrontational. Dare I say maybe I'm a bit grumpy about some things, but we can get through that and and do it. But we're going to have to we'll need some momentum to do it um, as well. But, you know, it's I think there is a possibility that it can happen all the same. Jack, Jackie Brown and Sally Goldner, thank you so much for joining me today on In Your Face. It's been a great pleasure chatting with you both. Always good to be with you. Thank you. 
Yep, and that documentary is called More. It's more complex than yes. Google it. It's more complex than yes. It's a 15-minute documentary produced by Queer Space, and it's awesome. It's 4.32. You're on In Your Face on 3CR, and here's Rochelle.
This is Matt from Burning Vinyl, Friday afternoons between 2 and 4 here on 3CR. To let you know about a benefit for Burning Vinyl, it takes place on Tuesday the 26th of June at the Old Bar on Johnson Street in Fitzroy. Four great bands, Claws and Organs, Bodies, Noughts and Claire Virtual. Know that you're supporting a semi-decent radio program. Burning Vinyl. Four great bands at the Old Bar, Tuesday the 26th of June. You don't know what you've got till it's gone. They paid paradise, put up a parking lot. They took all the trees, put them in a tree museum. And they charged the people a dollar and a half just to see them. Go, that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. Hey, farmer, farmer, put away the DDT now. Give me spots on my apples, or leave me the birds and the bees. Please don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. Late last night, I heard the screen door slam. And a big yellow taxi took away my old man. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. But you don't know what you've got till it's gone. They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. Joni Mitchell there with her classic big yellow taxi. It's 20 to 5 on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, Margaret Merrilee's new novel, Take Big Rough Stones, is a moving and hilarious portrayal of lesbian feminists in Adelaide. And we have Margaret on the line. Welcome, Margaret. Hi, James. So tell us about the lesbian community in Adelaide that inspired your new novel. Uh, how have they reacted to it? Well, yeah. Yeah, let's start with that. How have they reacted? <laughs> Well, pretty well, pretty well. It's funny, I've had a couple of people say to me, I have to tell you, James, this main character is not a perfect person. And um, As all good characters in novels are. <laughs> some of her behaviour is a little bit um, questionable. Do tell. And I've, I've had interesting reactions from people saying, you know, oh, no, we weren't as bad as that, were we? And... Uh, stuff like that. I had one woman saying to me, oh, I can't stand her. I kept going, oh, no, don't do that. Don't behave like that. So tell us so about this woman and her challenging behaviours. Well, 
I'm writing, I guess the part that people are referring to when they're reacting like that is the, um, it's, it's really spans about 40 years and it's the, it's the late 70s, the early 80s. You know, there was a lot of non-monogamy and um, people, well, you know, as you know, it was the social revolution that had happened in the late 60s and was still going in the 70s where people were trying out all sorts of things and, um, and there was a great belief in the lesbian feminist community that monogamy was a patriarchal plot and, uh, you know, you shouldn't, shouldn't be sucked in by it. So there was, there was a lot of painful uh, trying out of different models, I guess, and that's what people are remembering. I was actually going to ask you what influence uh, lesbian feminism from the 70s and 80s had on your writing, uh, but you've answered that, so I'm going to flip it around and say, um, what kind of issues came up for you during the marriage equality campaign in light of how marriage was seen as the enemy in the 70s and 80s and seen yeah, as a patriarchal, right. heterosexual institution that we shouldn't copy. Yeah, that's right. It's interesting, isn't it? I was part of the generation that, um, you know, fought for the right not to not be married. Um, you know, for my still for my contemporaries, I left school in 1969. It was sort of, it was still not okay to... Uh, live with uh, live with a man that you weren't married to if you're a woman. Um, so that was a struggle. That was a feminist beginning of the women's movement, that wave of the women's movement, I guess. And, uh, yeah, I think for quite a lot of women of my generation, there was a certain amount of, oh, no, last in the last few years in the fight for marriage equality, oh, no, we want to be married? We've come full circle or something? Um, yeah, so it's um, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, we demand the right to be married and to be treated at law in the same way as everyone else. I guess that's what most of us have come down to. Your new novel has been described as hilarious. Is there a distinct lesbian culture of humour? And if so, how would you describe it? Oh, that's a good question, James. Um, I suppose... Well, I think this is probably true of gay men too and the queer community generally. I I think it, maybe it's true of any oppressed group that you, um, you... Not that it's not okay for anyone outside the group to, you know, to send you up, but you send yourselves up a bit or you you find ways of not taking yourself too seriously or... You find ways of laughing at the oppression, even. And um, sometimes it's quite a black humour, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's, a, it's just a, well, wry, anyway, sort of wry humour that um, a lot of groups have, I guess. Would you describe lesbian humour as camp? As, as, as what, camp, sorry, As camp. Um, I think there's a certain campness to it, especially yeah. around, around drag kings. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? And gender yeah, bending it, around masculinity and, and lesbianism. Yeah, yeah, that's right. There was um, a couple of years ago. There was a um, an invitation to, uh, I think, the Pride March here, which is at the end of the year during the Feast Festival in Adelaide, and um, the the invitation said, "Come in drag," and 
once again, I, I mean, this is partly a generational thing, but I mean, most of the women I know, we've been in drag all our lives. <laughs> in that we've been wearing men's clothes or what was seen as men's clothes, you know. And so that was a, that was that was quite funny and people responded to that in different ways, I guess, and some people did camp it up a lot. Um so yeah, yeah, camp humour, there's a whole you could have a whole conference about that. A lack of visibility is often an issue for older lesbians. To what extent did you make a decision to challenge and overcome that with your fiction writing? Yeah, I um, I did. I did make that decision, and I suppose because I don't, I'm 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 still shocked when people treat me as though I'm invisible or they don't see me. It's it's always surprising. And it's, it's, I mean, this is about age as much as anything, and particularly ageing women. It's not just about lesbians. You do reach a point where, well, two things happen, actually, two contradictory things. One is that people start to stand up for you on the bus, which is interesting. (laughs) The first time it happened to me, I looked around to see who they meant. Like, you were looking for the pregnant woman. but the other thing that happens, yeah, is that people look straight past you and no longer think that uh, you have anything to say. And I, I, that's that, it's back to that question about humour. Like, that's sort of funny in a way. Um, you know, there's sort of something ironic about people. Like, you can you can laugh at people when they don't see you. And maybe that's what we were saying before about oppressed minorities, you know. If you're not seen or you're not seen clearly, then in a way you have the upper hand, certainly in terms of humour. Like, you get to laugh at the people who are not seeing you and they don't even know you're laughing at them, if you see what I mean. What does your novel tell us about lesbian sexuality? I imagine there's quite a few takes on that in your book. About sexuality? Yeah, and specifically lesbian sexuality. Yeah. Um, I think that I I tried not to duck the issues too much. um, Because it's an issue that's often invisible, isn't it? People think that older women aren't aren't sexual. uh, And there's all sorts of stereotypes and um, misinformation about lesbians and sexuality. And relationships. I've been writing uh, for some years an occasional online serial called Fables Queer and Familiar, which um, some of them were collected in a uh, a book Mm. and another book will come out in in the next little while. And it it was also a radio serial. And that in particular, that was my sort of subtitle for that is The Lesbian Grannies. And... I haven't. It's um, it's it's family entertainment, I guess. That is to say, there's no, there's not much explicit sex, but there has been all through that series. There've been you you get to understand that those two women do have sex. Like there's you know there's a whole there was a whole episode about how on earth do you what do lesbians do in bed, you know, which is been the question that's the age-old question (laughs) 
uh, what do lesbians actually do in bed? And, of course, the truth is that for any postmenopausal woman, what she does in bed is tries to find a way of not being too hot mm. and, um, you know, trying to stretch out her aching legs and stuff like that. So I've played with that a bit. And in the in the novel, in this novel, there is some some sex, but there's a, I guess what I've tried to do is just make it wallpaper, like uh, to reverse that assumption that old women don't have sex and go. Of course, old women have sex. You know, it's just of course they do. It's part of their lives. It may not be as big a part of their lives as it was 40 years ago, but it's still part of their lives. So yeah. That answer your question. It does indeed. Now, tell us about this character with the with the challenging behaviours. I want to know what she does. <laughs> what does she do that gets up Ro. everyone's goat? <laughs> um, Roe is uh, well-meaning politically. She's you know right on politically. She she's proud of being right on politically. So she's politically she, correct. Very politically correct, which is not a position that you can maintain really realistically. Um, she's a bit, um, she's a bit irresponsible. Let's say she's not always. She doesn't always turn up for work when she's meant to. She doesn't always get to the collective meetings that she's meant to. Is she a big drinker? Um, she she what sorry? Is she a big drinker? Um, she's not. She's more of a dope smoker. Right. Actually. Well, there you go. The, the demotivation that would explain yeah. not turning up for work. <laughs> of course, it's 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 you know sixties and seventies, or that's where it begins, isn't it? The book. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, um, really, really, the book starts from the nineteen eighties. Right. But of course, they've all their their feet are in the nineteen seventies. They've done their time in the collectives. Yeah. How yes, difficult look, how difficult is it to get lesbian fiction published? And what are some of the obstacles that you face in, in getting it a run, if well, you like, a print run? I've been lucky because there's a wonderful independent press in a publisher in Adelaide called Wakefield mm, Press. Mm, they're great. And they published my first novel, uh, which was called The First Week. And they've been terrific. They've been really, and they are, in fact, it's not just, to me, they support a lot of um, really worthwhile projects that wouldn't get off the ground mm. otherwise. Because you are combating um, as, a, as a lesbian writer that kind of, you know, lesbian invisibility and also, you know, capitalism as well and people saying, well, there's not really a market there that's big enough. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Is that it's, something that you find in Australia in particular? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there is a market, of course. Of course. I've just been on a living room tour to Hobart, Sydney, Blue Mountains, Canberra and Perth mm. so far. And, of course, there's a market. I've had a lovely time and, and they've been great sessions because they've, they've been a lot of, um, and not just for lesbians, for all sorts of people. It's just brought back, brought up memories of, of, those, of those times of um, trying to create social change, trying to get things moving. So the market's certainly out there. Uh, with this book, I'm not sure how seriously the critics are going to take it. That's a Why? sort of acid test. I mean, there have been some nice reviews already, but in terms of the literary world, 
Uh, I don't know how seriously they'll take it. Time will tell, but... They're often so resistant, far, though, to comedy novels, aren't they? The critics often kind of, you know, want the yeah, emotional crisis right. work. They don't necessarily yeah, want the, right. the black humour around the really serious issues. Yeah. And, you know, my last, the, the Fables, Queer and Familiar, had wonderful illustrations by Chia Moan, a Sydney artist, and um, uh, but they're almost sort of caricatures. Um, they're absolutely gorgeous, but, of course, no serious critic can take... T- can look at a book that's got illustrations in it like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Something like that. Margaret, best of luck with the, with the novel. Uh, it's getting yeah, great thanks, reviews. Thanks. Uh, it's called Take Big Rough Stones, and I imagine it's available at all good bookstores. Should be, should be. And um, if you have any trouble, I've got a website, margaretmerrilees.com, uh, or you can get in touch with the publisher direct. That's Wakefield Press. Margaret, thank you so much for talking to me. It's been fascinating chatting yeah. with you and Thanks best of luck. Thanks for having me, James. It's been a great yeah, pleasure. thank you. Cheers. Hi. That was Margaret Merrilees there talking about her new novel, Take Big Rough Stones. It is six to five. You are on In Your Face on 3CR and his hole.
Oh there, Miss World. It's three to five. I am out of here. Jacob's up next for the Friday rave. Taking us out, we've got The Cure. Why can't I be you? And we'll catch you next week on In Your Face. Thanks heaps to our guests. They were awesome. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.